Art of the Kickstart, Episode 95. Welcome to the Art of the Kickstart.com, where entrepreneurs are constantly pushing the envelope to build businesses of greatness. Inventors are innovating, creating the products of the future, and backers stand strong for what they believe. These are some of the great thinkers, inventors, and leaders of our time. Here are their stories. Guys, before we jump into the interview, I want to thank today's show sponsor, eFulfillmentService.com, the company that's helping crowdfunders everywhere. Guys, launching a Kickstarter campaign isn't exactly easy. That's why the majority of Kickstarters fail, despite how hard interns work. I put together a free six-step email mini course to try to eradicate this evil issue and help inventors and entrepreneurs everywhere. If you guys go to artofthekickstart.com slash checklist, you can get the new and improved six-step guide that's going to walk you step-by-step through making your Kickstarter, your crowdfunding campaign happen. Check it out, artofthekickstart.com slash checklist, and make your crowdfunding dreams happen. Hey guys, welcome to an interesting podcast. And really, I shouldn't be introducing it. It's me, Matt, and my friend, Matt. All right. So guys, this is going to be a little uh, a little interesting. We're recording this right out of Saigon, coolest apartment ever, <laughs> way better than my place. And I've got Matt Kowalik from China Opportunities. Basically, the king of sourcing. Yeah, I wish. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on, Matt. Thanks we're for having me. We're trying to do in this like kind of mixed up podcast. Matt's a, he's an expert on sourcing. I know a thing or two about crowdfunding. Let's see what we can do, and maybe maybe Matt can help me with an awesome product. Sounds good. So I think uh, see one thing I'm terrible about is I'm really bad at making this into a conversation. Okay. I turn into the interviewer like right off the bat. That's fine. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess. How'd you get? How'd you honestly get into all this? Uh, it's kind of a wacky story, you know. I finished up school. I was uh, at school in uh, in Michigan and finished up school there, and didn't just didn't see a ton of opportunity. I was honestly I was petrified of like going to the same office to the same I, I, every just job the same I had every day. Yeah. yeah, every job I ever had, I hated. I was just a bad employee. I, I didn't work very hard. I felt like I was always doing the minimal. To kind of get by and get to have something, you know, I hear these stories of these other guys who have these hot shot jobs when they were in their twenties and stuff. And man, for me, it was always a struggle to kind of find motivation. I, I, I wasn't really motivated by anything. And what'd you study? Political science. Okay, so that's like, part oh, of your problem. Yeah, do a uh, couple years. You know, I thought I'd go to law school, and you know, it just seemed like a, a track. Like, all right, you can make some money being a lawyer. I like to argue, but that yeah, you like to argue, but you're never in the courtroom, right? I was bad with the research, which is where all the money's made. So yeah, I saw some um, advertisement for a teaching English in China program, and I hadn't really traveled much, kind of growing up. I mean, I traveled on in the in the the USA quite a bit, but never really left the country, and and I really kind of always had wanted to do that, and saw that as a great opportunity, and I didn't really have a ton going on, and. So yeah, I just bolted uh, for this city I'd never heard of, Shenzhen. Uh, oh, you went right Chinese. to Shenzhen. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah, so I kind of got lucky and stumbled into that, and did the teaching thing for like a year, year and a half, and enjoyed my my life and partied a bit, and then started going to school. I started studying Chinese at the Shenzhen at the University of Shenzhen, which was super cheap back in the day. It was like twelve hundred dollars for a semester, twenty hours of class time a week. So I studied Chinese and. Chase girls for a while and uh, perfect. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. And then um, and uh, then a friend, a good friend of mine, uh, Terry, who's my business partner now, he started uh, a company sourcing and kind of opened my eyes to this new 
world of bridging the bridging the kind of manufacturing needs of foreign companies coming into China and, and Chinese manufacturers and really starting to understand. You know, I thought it, you know people just came over, you know, and and found factories and and, it, and that's how it worked. But there's all these different different size factories for different products and different quality levels and and really learning how to be a good matchmaker and how to work with Chinese suppliers to kind of get the results that you wanted. You know, it took a long, long time to uh, to start figuring that out. So yeah, I did all kinds of stuff. I did aluminum and zinc die casting products. I sold those services. Terry and I had a failed lacrosse chef company, Samurai Lacrosse, that never really got up and running. Oh, Samurai. You should have gone for like Ninja or something. Yeah, yeah Samurai. It just doesn't sound right. Yeah. And um, yeah, kind of just kept trying and, and failing and going back and getting jobs and trying again. And, and same thing with my business partner, Jamin. He was working for a battery manufacturer and... Uh, financial crisis everybody you know he was the most expensive guy in the office being the foreigner and so uh we ended up deciding to kind of give it a shot on uh, on our own and and try to build something that's cool i've always seen like those opportunities and i know they pitched us all the time in college like guys if you know how to speak english go to china and teach english would you say that's a cool opportunity for entrepreneurs i've heard you can do it like part-time yeah you? And then build something part-time. I mean, for sure. I did that while we were kind of... I'd done it at the beginning when I was first getting going in China. And then once we had kind of got the company up and going, you know, it wasn't... At first, it wasn't running strong enough for us to be pulling out enough to, to survive on. So we're supplementing it a little bit. Teaching, you could make $30 an hour under the table teaching English. So it's not a bad gig. There's more and more people doing that in China. I think in the bigger cities, it's it's not the opportunity that it used to be. Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, maybe, maybe not. I mean, my girlfriend does it now and she's makes pretty good money and it's very consistent and, and fairly easy. It's not super, super difficult. So yeah, if you can kind of balance that, you know, the, the problem is a lot of people fall in that the, the golden handcuffs trap. You know, it's so easy to make. Yeah, it's like consulting and then you never build anything. That's the the issue everybody has. Yeah, it gives you enough money to make a comfortable life. But then uh, unless you're really bothered by being an employee or not building something, it's easy to just fall into that comfort and, you know, afford you enough to travel around China and party a bit and stuff like that. But for me, it was always this kind of gnawing, like, you know... Let's hey, do something. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, like I want something that's mine, that's my own. I didn't really, you know, I didn't really care what it was. I had no business going into to business. I hadn't studied it. I didn't have a family or anything that was in business. So, I mean, uh, there were a lot of bumps and bruises the first year, year and a half before things kind of finally started catching. And it really happened too. Like everybody tells you when you when you niche down. I mean, when we first got going, of course, we were. Oh, yeah. You want hubcaps? Sure, I'll make hubcaps. Oh, you want a chair? I'll find somebody to make a chair. And it didn't, it did not get, it didn't really catch until we're like, okay, we're only going to do this one thing. We're only going to make men's fashion accessories just because I had been in and worked for a company that did skateboards, hard good manufacturing before that. So I could see that a lot of these skateboard companies had good names and whatever, but they're skaters, you know, they're skaters and artists. They didn't really understand manufacturing very well. And they really needed a one-stop shop for somebody where they could go and make backpacks and hats and wallets and belts and J 
jackets and hoodies and whatever. And some of these companies, you know, I mean, Zoo York and some of these big brands, they're you know, Looking right. 10, yeah. 20 million dollar brands and, and doing really well. And still just some creative guy like in his garage that still really wants to bust out and do a wheelie or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And like every even designing t shirts, he's like, Ugh, corporate life, gross, you know? And yeah. So yeah, I mean we kind of once we kind of found something like that and, and focused on that niche, we started getting some traction and then kind of building up and building up and building up. And now we're working with a couple of very large uh, brands in the States and it's nice and stable. It took a long time to kind of get that way. But yeah, it's uh it was an interesting ride, you know, over 10 years. I mean, I, I literally, right after I finished university, I never really had a job, a corporate job in the States. I just came out to China right away. and That makes two of us, not China, <laughs> but Thailand. Right. But yeah, that's like, that's something I've seen too. Like, I want to make my own thing. And that's what I see with my, with my podcast, the people that are into crowdfunding. That's what I kind of see with what you're doing right. with helping people source. So really why I wanted to connect with you was... Because, A, you're kind of awesome. You're in the D.C. I'm making a product, and you seem to be, like, the product go-to guy. That's what everybody tells me. Trying to be, yeah. Trying to make a little name for ourselves, the China guys. So, let's say you're crowdfunding something. Okay. How in God's name do you get it manufactured? Well, I think a big part of of getting a good manufacturer is doing your kind of groundwork, laying that groundwork correctly and understanding your project. You know, I think... I hear, you know, some guys talk about, oh, just going to, I mean, there's a couple of ways you could do it. You could do it like the Manal guys where you just move next to the factory and, and bug them until they make your product for you. What would you say about that? Because I've been I, thinking about doing that. I mean, it, it definitely works. I like to, I like to chum the waters and kind of get a, a frenzy going, you know, and, and, and by doing, by really having a good understanding of your product. You really want to research your materials and, and understand what your materials are. Like you're saying, you're using bamboo. You know, what's what does that cost? You know, what does that cost per per yard or per meter? How is it how is it sold? What are the different options for purchasing raw materials? I mean, a big value add for our customers is we don't we don't let our manufacturers just always say, I want to make this product, like go do everything. You know, we go out and say, okay, we're going to buy the YKK zippers for our bags and we'll deliver them to you. We're going to go make the patches for these hats and we'll deliver them to you. Give me the raw cost for everything. Because then we can make them break it down and say, okay, you know, the straps on these bags cost this, the zippers cost this, the assembly is this. The leather straps cost this much and really make them break it down into an exact and a very detailed list of exactly what goes into it. How do you get them to do that? Like I've been trying to do that with my manufacturer now. I'm making I'm making a standing desk right. which basically converts from a laptop case and mm-hmm. I've been talking to my manufacturer so like I tried I try to keep things real real civil and fun, but at the same time I've never made anything with right. him before. So he has no real reason to trust me. Right. I'm just some random guy that Vincent Co the uh-huh. the guy behind Panda right. recommended. Yeah, I think that uh I mean you really have to understand it from their perspective too, right? They are, everybody's looking for, everybody's weighing opportunity costs, right? If he takes on your project and spends time on that, he's not doing something, they're not doing something else. So you need to either pitch them as, uh, as you're a good opportunity for moving forward, or you're leaning hard on that relationship with Vincent and saying, Hey, I need you to do me a favor. So I kind of think that maybe evaluating, Hey, are they going to be the right size manufactured for a Kickstarter program? Right, si- right now, that seems to be the best one. Like the right. minimum orders I'm looking at are 
200 per per skew. Yeah. So I'm thinking running my Kickstarter, having 13 inch laptop cases right. and 15 inch cases, right. two different skews, 400 minimum. Right. And that's like that. That's been the best mix of like price and quality right. that I found so yeah. far. I think that's a good way to get started. So I think what you can do, especially for them, if you want to keep it very nice, very civil, is is kind of try to do try to understand that product, try to understand that process, ask questions, but don't you know you know you don't want to be uh, peppering them with random questions every day and make it seem like they're teaching you how to do everything unless they're. You know, unless they're into it, you know, I mean, a lot of those guys are going to be okay with that. But a lot of people also, you know, they, they're, they're, everybody's busy, right? I mean, they're all No one wants to, high maintenance. Right. Yeah. So you also want to, I think that's a good, something to discuss too, is you want to present yourself as a good customer, you know, like these are not the days, like the early sourcing days when you're, you know, a foreigner who shows up in China and you've got, you know, we say, I work for a company, I have these orders and you have people knocking down your doors to, to bending over backwards to do, to do whatever they need to do to get the orders. It's not necessarily like that anymore. It could be, though, if you kickstart it first. But it you should have be. the manufacturing in line ahead of time. Right. So I think that, yeah, that's important. Is for, for To go back to what you're talking about with kickstarters, is to really understand the timelines and how long it takes to manufacture, right? So even for us with suppliers that we've worked with for years and they know exactly what product we're making, exactly what thing still takes... 20, 25 days to make a sample. It still takes 40, 45 days to make a bulk production run. You know, you still have to ship it across the ocean. It still takes five days to go through customs, 25 days on the water and five days to US customs. Like it just takes that time. So to understand that, hey, you know, I see all these guys who are like, all right, I'm going to get a, a Kickstarter campaign done and all right, I finish it and I'll be shipping out products, you know, 45 days later and they haven't even found a manufacturer yet and confirmed a manufacturer. So I think it's very important to kind of do that groundwork ahead of time and understand what your time frame is. You know, we work with the brands we work with eight to 10 months out to when they're looking to have products in, in stores development-wise. It takes a long time. They make samples and they cut down the number of SKUs and they make salesman samples set to go out and sell the products to retailers and then they place the final bulk production. So I think to really understand what that full timeline looks like and then also to realize that when your Chinese supplier tells you what the timeline is, they're usually speaking in reference to best case scenario. Like this is the best it's going to be. People tell you what you want to hear. Yeah, right. And the Chinese are very good at that. Not to be stereotypical, but uh, they are... Yeah, I mean, they do like to... They, they like to say yes. Like they have a very difficult time saying no to anything, uh, which is a little bit different from what I found in, found in Vietnam. People seem very willing to say, no, I don't want to do that or no, I can't do that. In China, you know, we say to be very cautious about getting a yes with a question mark, which is very difficult to understand. But um, yeah, sometimes, you know, I, I made that mistake early in my days where I'm like, oh, well, the customer needs it in 20 days. Can you do it in 20 days? And they say, yeah. Send them send the deposit in, and you know once they send the deposit, once you send the deposit, they know that you're pregnant and they've got you, and you have to get it finished. Uh-huh. You're not going to go place a deposit with somebody else. So I think being being uh, as clear as possible with the supplier about the timelines that you need, and then padding them with an extra ten percent anyway is is going to be the best way to kind of make sure that your timeline really works really well. And I think. For the brands that we work with that are successful and stable, they are very in control of their supply chain. It's not what we call a leaky supply chain where 
you know, we had a, a problem with a customer before the right before the Chinese New Year where the colors for a, a bag specification were inverted and the colors were wrong. And the supplier's like, okay, I'll just make another one. I'm like, well, it doesn't really help because you're on vacation for a month. By the time we get that and ship that to them, it's six weeks later. We've missed the sales season. There will be no orders for this style because there's not a sample to pr- promote. They can show a rendering of it, but it's not really going to work. So making sure that your kind of priorities are understood, right? You know, I mean, you tell people like if your supplier tells you, hey, the sample's ready in 20 days, don't get an expensive photographer and say, be here 21 days from now because the sample's going to be here. My Chinese supplier promised me. You know, you need to really make sure that you're you're understanding that and managing it and kind of doing this onboarding thing. You need to learn how to work with them and they're learning to work with you. Uh, every supplier, every customer is different. Every supplier is different. It just takes time. Yeah, it's a relationship thing and that's what makes it, that's complicated. Right. So you talked, uh, you said a bunch about basically getting seller samples. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I'm looking at. I had a, had a really good meeting with some guys here and they were basically... I've I've got great responses on the desk. People seem to like it, especially this crowd, because you can use it anywhere. Right. And they're saying, I should definitely go retail with this after the Kickstarter. And I definitely see the value in that. Challenge being that you need those samples for retail. Right. What do you do? Like, what would you recommend for a Kickstarter? Let's say I'm kickstarting something. Do I do a pre-production run to get samples to send out? Do I wait till afterwards? Like... What have you seen with some companies? Yeah, I mean, for us, you know, once you have the kind of, once you have that relationship going with the supplier, you know, the samples, the initial prototype to make one piece of anything is difficult, you know, and I always get this where our customers are like, well, you know, I don't understand why the supplier is angry. Like, we're paying for the samples, we're paying $20, $30 for a a hat for samples. Well, even, you know, the, 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 this big Chinese supplier that's cranking out thousands and thousands of products a day, that doesn't mean anything. They're probably still losing money by having somebody craft one piece, right? So they know that that's part of business, right? You have to do samples to make orders. But one thing I didn't respect right off the bat is you cannot be super frivolous with making samples because you only have a certain amount of patience that they're going to take with you. If you make you know, 15 different SKU samples and you come back with order for two of them, they're not going to be super excited to make 15 SKUs the next time, right? So you need to kind of be patient, do that groundwork. And, and if you're going to build a relationship with a Chinese supplier, that's, that, that is not the place to be experimenting with making prototypes, making products and stuff like that. You want to wait until you start off with a small amount of number. They, Chinese suppliers thrive on volume, right? They're making they're making the least... If you look at the, the chain, the retail chain from manufacturing to, to end retail, the Chinese manufacturer makes the smallest percentage per piece, but they also make all the pieces, right? So you need to kind of be careful. And again, it, it comes to understanding and respecting them from a business perspective, right? What are their goals, right? And, and trying to make sure that you fit in with that. But yeah, I think it's very important to make that make a prototype. I, I, to me, it seems if you're going to do that lean manufacturing style, you would make a prototype, put it up there, make sure that people like it, make five or, or five to ten salesman samples, and try to get them into the hands of uh, sales reps, commission only sales reps who are excited about the brand and want to be a part of it. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think that trying to fund a first production run is a bad idea, but 
sometimes it also seems like you would want to strike while the iron's hot and you don't want to lose momentum. So if you're looking and saying, hey, from making that final, putting down that deposit on a, on a, I don't know how long it would take with they've quoting you for timelines production wise, but if it's 30 to 45 days for manufacturing from placing a deposit and then another 35 days, if you have to ship it by ocean, you know, you're, you're two to three months out from placing that 30, 50% deposit to a supplier to actually getting those products even landed in a warehouse, not, not out to retailers. So kind of trying to understand what that timeline, are people going to say, Hey, I'll put up money and you can send me a standing desk in three months. Is that going to work? Or are they going to say, Hey, I want this, you know? Yeah, I'm ready to roll. I want this thing next week if I'm going to pay a premium for it. So I think that's kind of what you need to measure is again, who is your audience? I mean, it worked great for the Manal guys. People were willing to, to fund that idea way far out in advance, which uh, I, you know, I mean, to see that really opened up a new, yeah, huge amount of possibilities to me. I mean, we never, we never connected those dots either in China. Now we're kind of seeing this. This connection, this circle of people who are selling online, people who are crowdfunding these ideas, and then being able to be the manufacturing back end of that and kind of flip that on. And it can really be a kind of a powerful circle. Yeah, that's part of why we're hooking up. I mean, <laughs> you're doing sourcing, I'm doing crowdfunding. We, right. can, we can help people make awesome happen. Yeah, timeline wise, I've gotten shorter numbers than that. And mm-hmm. I might actually be able to air freight. The products right. just because they're not that heavy, but that's that's neither here nor there. Well, I mean, I, I think that's important. You know, I mean, people, you know, for me, air freighting is is something like that. If you have a product that's so hot that people want it now, maybe worth it because air freighting is going to be two to three times more expensive than shipping by ocean. So, I mean, it, it can be if you're doing a lot of stuff, the products are big. If they're heavy, it can be expensive. You know, some products we couldn't ship by by ocean. So yeah, I think it, it does. It depends on your understanding the regulations, understanding the you know the the duty on bringing in wood products to wherever or, or you know. Oh no, I haven't looked into any of that yet. Target market. Oh, Jesus. And, I mean, wood specifically has to have a specific treatment. We have to do that with the skateboards specifically to Australia. Everything had to be sprayed so they didn't get bugs and and stuff like that. So there's uh. Yeah, it's one of those things like we, we did the, this boot camp for people with the Canton Fair. We had a lot of people in there with successful six-figure profit businesses. And I think the one constant feedback we got is people, you know, even they thought that they had it kind of figured out. But then once we kind of went through and discussed, hey, this is all the every steps that we all the steps that we do in our process, I think people didn't realize how many things there are to kind of consider. And yeah, you can get, you know, you can get lucky, right? You can jump on Alibaba and maybe you find the perfect supplier right away. But, you know, I think it's, if you're going to do this as a, as a career for a long, for the long term, it's very important to kind of understand, to manage your relationship and then also to have, to have a diversified supplier base and have more than one supplier. Would you start with Alibaba? That's what I've been doing. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, for us, Alibaba... You know, it is a great way to start. We still use it today. Our, our, my, some of our employees, there's a couple other ones made in China, a couple other Chinese sites, but it's a very good way of kind of gathering basic information. But we always do face to face visits before we place orders. And I know that's not possible for everybody, but it is the single best way to start a relationship with the supplier is to sit down with them face to face. And again, I talk about this a lot is you don't want to be 
PO number 43872, profit of $1,500 per order. You want to be Steve from New York that likes spicy food and beer, you know, or whatever, and has two kids and goes fishing, right? So I think that people kind of skip over that stuff because it doesn't seem necessary or maybe, I I don't know, they think that Chinese people... weird over email. Yeah, are totally different culture-wise, but I think that to be able to kind of... It doesn't work every time and everybody's doing, you know, business is business, but if you can give yourself a little bit of an advantage by doing that, I think it's worth spending the time and effort. It's not that much effort. So if you can't fly, do you do like a Skype video? Do a Skype video or just try to interject personality in your emails and... Like a lot of people would be like, oh, I'm just trying to respect their time and blah, blah, blah. But most of these sales reps, if you're speaking English to a sales rep in China, they're more than likely under 35, probably watch a lot of American TV shows. You know, I mean, that stuff is all very popular in in China. They're interested in meeting people. And, you know, one thing I always tell people, a great way to ingratiate yourself is to say, hey, you want to, I don't know, practice your English for 15 minutes on Skype once a week or something, try to make friends. You know, sometimes, even if it does seem obvious, you know, that, you know, that culture is like in Asia. If, If somebody presents a gift, there is a responsibility to reciprocate, right? So you can kind of fish a little bit and put the, the responsibility on somebody else to kind of reciprocate that. I like that. I've never heard that strategy before. And it gets you the gets you closer. Right. What are questions you guys or you think that people trying to source would have about crowdfunding? Because really, like if you're making a product, I don't see why you don't crowdfund it. Right. Yeah, I mean, for me, I guess, you know, it's one of those things where we focus so much on what we were doing with with the sourcing that I mean, for a long time, all the rest of that stuff kind of seemed very kind of abstract to me. Like I didn't understand the marketing concepts and how you go from manufacturing the product to marketing it, to selling it, to retailing it. Like, you know, it always seemed like for me to see these, the mold fees and this, you know, the setup runs, you know, if you couldn't get a product, you know, a, a little range of products going for under 15 or 20 grand. And I was just never confident enough in one product to do it. And then the sourcing business kind of takes over and then you get stuck in this, just focusing on keeping up with that because it, it ends up being these little... You're spinning these plates, right? And trying to keep them all moving and keep them going and communicating between you know between the supplier, between the buyers and it ends up just eating up all your bandwidth. And, uh, and we stop thinking about that. But yeah, I think that having a basic kind of understanding of the manufacturing process before you crowdfund so that you know, I'll go back to listening to Dan and Ian, one of their podcasts, talking about a product they were making, and they found out you know they couldn't hit their price point. They didn't understand it. What's going on? What's going on? Turns out, one of the colors of paints that they were using was super expensive. So by switching from one color to another color that was similar, they were able to cut their cost by you know seven percent or something, and it made the product viable. And before that, it wasn't. So make sure that there aren't any little any hitches like that, you know, for us in using YKK zippers on the bags, um, you know, that can be 15% of the cost of the, of the goods is because they're the best, it's the best quality zipper out there. Like if you want to use gold YKK zippers, you got to pay for it, you know, and understanding where all your costs are and like trying to do as much as you can to communicate with the bot, with the suppliers of exactly what, what the manufacturing process is going to be. And are there any of these little pitfalls, any of these little traps that you're not 
exploring correctly. And what and that goes back to you as the as the manufacturer, as the as the product creator. What do you think is important to people? You know, do they need a cup holder for their stand, or is that superfluous? You know, and, and it's costing you more money, or it's difficult for the manufacturer to make, and you doesn't really matter to you in the end all be all. But you guys haven't made, you haven't had that discussion, so. They're thinking to you, okay, that everything is critical. I have to have, it has to be exactly this tall. It has to be exactly this wide. And you may be able to make it easier for them or cut your cost or something by changing something that to you is, you know, is just a, a visual aesthetic. And, and, and to them, they're thinking it's critical. It has to be exactly this tolerance. And I think that that's really important is, is communicating with your supplier what you're looking for. Are you flexible anywhere? Are you willing to take their suggestions? Because they'll, they'll make suggestions. They'll help you out and say, hey, it'd be a lot easier if we did this. That's something I notice like all the time in engineering. Like You can engineer something incredible, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make it viable. And right. the limits of CAD and like when you're creating something, that doesn't necessarily mean it can be produced in the real world. There are, there are all, of these, all of these variations. Right. So I think, I think we've done a pretty good job covering sourcing products and stuff. What other things do you think are worth covering that we haven't haven't talked about yet? Um, I guess I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, this project that we're trying to launch. Yes, uh, running with China. You know, we've been getting a lot of feedback for a while on people of you know why don't we try to teach people sourcing? I know Dan and Ian uh, had talked about trying to do something for a while, and nobody's really tackled this. I mean, I've been in the dynamite circle for for years and watched it blossom from. You know, a small group of of people who were doing a mastermind call to you know this incredible entrepreneurial hub around the world where you can fly into Ho Chi Minh or Chiang Mai or Austin, Texas, and you've instantly got ten or fifteen people that you can go meet up for lunch, have an interesting conversation with, grab a couple of beers, maybe even find a business partner. You know, or record a podcast. Record a podcast. Yeah. So. Basically, we kind of have been inspired by that to try to create something like that for Chinese manufacturing. You know, I've been there for over a decade now in Shenzhen, and um, it can be lonely and intimidating if you're an idiot like me and uh, you you don't know how good you had it back in the States and uh, you just wanted to travel. I mean, it was kind of realized there were a lot of easier paths to kind of go down. But the language barrier is difficult. Shenzhen's hot. The weather's kind of crazy. It's, it's very busy and intense. And it can be very overwhelming to know where to start. But basically, what we want to do is show people our process, our, our nine-step process to... What is your nine-step process? Starting from the very beginning where you're gathering information and pulling in manufacturers to sorting out those manufacturers, understanding your product... Yeah, so basically with uh, with Running With China, what we're trying to do is come up with nine different modules for kind of helping people understand this process from A to Z. So we start off with managing expectations, which is kind of what we talked about before. Understanding your product, the materials that are going into it, understanding the manufacturer's position, and really trying to man- match up your expectations. Is price most important? Is quality most important? Right, Because if you're, if you're manufacturing a product and you're selling it retail... A two or three dollar difference in a total in a fifteen or twenty dollar product, it may not make a huge difference to you, but five dollars to go from fifteen dollars to a twenty dollar product is a huge difference quality wise. It's going to be very different. So 
as a sourcer, right, that margin is tight. It's important for me to keep that cost low. If you're going to, to retail and you're owning the brand, maybe it's not so important to you. So really trying to match up what you need from a supplier is kind of important in this section where you're kind of finding different suppliers. And then we go through and, and do the factory identification and show you our process for how do we look and evaluate factories. We do a lot of... I, when I started off working with Terry, I did a lot of grunt work and going to factories and looking at them. And, and we kind of learn to get a gut feel for walking into a factory, what you look for, what, what are the kind of... What are the tricks of the trade for figuring out a good manufacturer from a poor manufacturer? You know, do they have a process? Is this process documented? Do the workers at the station, is it organized or is everything kept in one manager's head and is not, you know, it's not a written down process. It's one person controlling everything. Okay. What happens if that person gets sick? The whole factory shuts down, you know, really trying to see. How well organized are they? How laid out are they? Also, like you said, if you're doing this product a couple hundred pieces, that may be the minimum order, but they may be expecting you to jump up to a thousand or five thousand pieces very quickly, and you might not be ready to do that. So, if you walk, if I'm walking these factories where you know there's 700 workers and a huge facility, and like, okay, this isn't going to be right for me because I know that the volume expectations eventually are going to get very high. Right? They're going to need that higher volume to kind of survive. And then also you say, okay, well, these guys have a low price. It's a super small factory, but they're very dedicated. They're very passionate. And the price is super cheap. Is this something you can work with and take over the responsibility of managing a project on your own and take that out of their hands and add that value to your customer? So we go from the identification, from finding those suppliers to how do you evaluate? How do you narrow those down and get yourself you know, we'd like to call it the uh, the gold, the Olympic medal, a gold, silver, and a bronze, right? So who's your number one supplier? Who's your backup supplier? Your second backup supplier? Because you want to be able to, one, not have one factory be the linchpin for your entire business. If they get a new manager or they upgrade machines or they change something, you know, a lot of these factories back in the day, we would get these, or even factories will specifically underbid on a project for one or two orders and then start raising that price because they think they have you hooked and you don't have an option to go anywhere else. So by having developing a backup supplier, you kind of leave yourself another door. If they, they can't hit your price or you feel they're being unreasonable, you've got an alternative. You can go somewhere else. Then we go through our negotiation part. So both Jamin and I got our postgraduate degrees in uh, Hong Kong at the Chinese University of Hong Kong studying Chinese business law. And it's kind of fun to see the legal aspect of it and then how those kind of negotiations actually play out in China. We go over how to use contracts in China, which I kind of liken to a poker game. It's not necessarily the ironclad agreement that they are in the West, but uh, you give yourself cards to play and leverage, how to set up and execute a quality control program, how to manage bulk production, keep it on time, how to work with freight forwarders and moving your products. Sometimes you have to move products within China. Sometimes you need to export them. Getting that, bringing them into another country, and then how to upkeep, you know, how to maintain a relationship with suppliers, how to kind of deal with creating a supply chain and, and keep that maintenance correct so that you end up moving a very smooth, through a smooth process. So we've got a video series that kind of walks everybody through all of that stuff, supplementary documents, contract templates, AQL inspection templates, kind of show you how to set up an entire process like that. And then 
We'll also have a backend forum, which hopefully will uh, blow up like the DCs and become this amazing living community of people everywhere kind of working together. I think that that's a big part of it too. China is, if you don't know a lot of people, it's a, it's a lonely place to work. It can be very isolating. It's, Especially if you don't speak Chinese. Right. I mean, I tell people it's the only country where you can literally be surrounded by people crushed to death and be totally alone, you know, and you feel totally, you can be very isolating. But yeah, I think the, the whole overall message of running with China is that, you know, anybody can do this. It's not... Uh, there's nothing special about me. Like I said, I was uh, an average student, studied political science. I don't have a background in this. I just was too dumb to know when to quit and just stuck with it and didn't really have a great alternative. And also, I kind of always just wanted to, he said, to build something and to, to, to own a business that didn't really care what it was at first. So is there a product coming? Uh, eventually. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, physical products for us... Uh, that's something uh, our business partner Terry's got quite a bit more experience with us uh, than us. In Is that Terry Lynn or a different Terry? Terry Omada. Okay. So he's uh, doing some big stuff retail wise with his uh, brand, and um, we're learning from him and still trying to work the other side. You know, he's got our kind of our flag planted in the States in Seattle, and we're supporting the back end in, in, uh, in Shenzhen. We managed to merge our two sourcing companies this year, which took a lot of time and put a lot of stress on friendships, but uh, did okay. And yeah, we're kind of looking to move forward as, a, as this kind of cohesive unit and really hopefully uh, instead of doing the, uh, the sourcing gigs, focus on, on teaching people and trying to find ways to work with people who are selling goods on Amazon or doing crowdfunding and kind of showing people that uh, you, know, you don't have to be a multinational conglomerate to build an efficient, effective supply chain and, and build products in China or Vietnam or wherever. I mean, that's the cool thing is we're not experts in any one product or material. We're experts in the process, right? How do you evaluate suppliers? How do you go through this whole process of finding out it will work in China? And I'm sure there's some cultural adjustments to be made to Vietnam, but this, the process is the same process of kind of going through this, this checklist. And it's just like, you know, all the guys at ASM or Dropship Lifestyle or all of these teaching courses where, you know, I can't guarantee that the results are going to be perfect every time, but you follow the, the, the steps in the process nine times out of 10. If you go through everything, you know, this will work. It does work. This is exactly what we do. And, uh, yeah, I think for a long time, you know, sourcing was this, you know, this weird, nobody wanted to share any information. Everybody was hoarding the suppliers and, and not sharing that information. But kind of what we realize is there's so much bad information out there because of that, because the people who are really know what they're doing still kind of have this concept of, of protecting their suppliers or whatever. But yeah, I think that by kind of sharing that information and, and, and trying to push it and make it public, I mean, Plus can, Alibaba, yeah. Right, yeah. But you can know, right, exactly. But if, if Alibaba was that easy, everybody would be doing it, right? Oh, uh, yeah. No, so it's not easy. I've said it. it. Right? I mean, I, I could give you all of my suppliers and most of my customers right now. It's still an incredible amount of work to manage that communication and, and understand all that process and keep things online and keep stuff with the, the schedule. We got to be so close to it that we didn't realize maybe how difficult it was. You know, it starts to become that second nature to you. Yeah. But then when we started doing the boot camps, we tried doing the boot camps last year and the feedback we got from people was, this is great, you know, awesome information. I wish I had known this before I got started. So and I think that that was really eye-opening for us that we could create that much value there and not just be 
a sourcing agent where you know people are trying to bargain you down on a nickel or something like this, and it's just this mentally exhausting work. It's not very rewarding, and we got a taste of, of kind of working with people and teaching people in October uh, with mostly a DC crew, and uh, yeah, it was just fascinating and, and much more interesting than than you know bidding for promotional item yeah. manufacturing. Yeah, one else stuff. I think that pretty much wraps up most of the questions I had on. Right. Source and manufacture and stuff. Uh, been an interesting little chat. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, yeah. man. It's been it's been a pleasure. Cool. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Hopefully, hopefully you found something pretty good about sourcing and you got some ideas for some products. Cheers. Hey, guys. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Art of the Kickstart, where we believe inventors, innovators, and entrepreneurs are changing the world and bringing humanity forward into the future. If you liked the ideas in this episode, or you're interested in learning more about crowdfunding and how to kill it with your own Kickstarter campaign, you can check out more at artofthekickstart.com. And if you've been listening to the show, love the episodes, but you're not subscribed, that's got to change. You can go to artofthekickstart.com slash iTunes or slash Stitcher and get the episodes delivered magically to your phone. And if you like the show, I would love you forever if you leave a review on iTunes. It helps more aspiring inventors and creators out there find the show and find the information they need to kill it on Kickstarter. Until next time, thanks for tuning in, guys, and have an absolutely epic day.